0: Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. This is my dad, Ted.
1: Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Knightsky. Well, you are in store for a treat because it was so much fun for me to interview Susan Rogers. Susan is proof that mentors are everywhere, that role models are everywhere, and that everyone is a leader. I mean... I was reading this book that my friend Mark had suggested we read for our book club, and I instantly fell in love with it. As a matter of fact, to the point where I read it a second time, created tools around it, got so excited that I tried to reach out to her. And then I did reach out to her, and she reached back out to me right away and said, I would love to be on your podcast. And I thought, what am I going to do? This is a music expert. This is a neuroscientist. This is someone who's worked with Prince and the Bare Naked Ladies and all types of artists. And she was fascinating, and she was fun. And she is going to teach you a lot about how to listen to music and also how to persevere through your life, no matter what is happening to you. Enjoy this great conversation I had with Susan and be ready to learn. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. Uh, This is Ted Nightsky again with you. And I am joined by author, producer, music lover, professor, Susan Rogers, uh, who just wrote a co-authored a book called This Is What It Sounds Like. I could not be more excited to talk to her. Um, And longtime listeners know that um, I have a book club, the Boys, Bourbons, and Book Group. And uh, this is our book for this month. And well, I murdered it, Susan, with notes and highlights and bent pages. So I could not be more excited to talk to you today.
0: Thank you so much for having me on the program, Ted. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
1: Yeah. So, Susan, let's get right into it. You grew up in California. And like what was what what, what was life like as a, a kid in like elementary school, middle school? What were those formative years like for you um, as a child?
0: When I was very young, we lived in Anaheim, California, in a tract of homes that was right next door to Disneyland. No exaggeration. There was this tract of homes. We lived on Lullaby Lane, and next door was Disneyland. So you can imagine, you know, this is the early 60s, and the neighborhood kids would take allowance money and birthday money, and you'd go next door to Disneyland. And in those days, for children, You could get into the park for 50 cents. So, to go on the rides was more expensive, but you buy these ticket books to get on the rides, but you could get into the park for 50 cents, which meant that as a kid, I and the other neighborhood kids could run around and actually see fantasy become reality and see. It, sometimes you try to sneak in the bushes behind some of the roads, you know, the, the rides like uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and, and, and some of these certain things. You could you try to sneak in behind to see, how oh, do they do that? You could see the mechanisms and the gears in some cases. This is in the early days of Disneyland. So it was so fantastic to get the awareness that adults will build things for our pleasure. It's serving no useful purpose other than entertainment and pleasure. That was a huge influence on me when do, I was young.
1: Do you think that curiosity to go behind the scenes is something that was like innate in you and that, that's kind of led you to who you are today?
0: That could be. Uh, my dad was a, one of those men from a generation who was a naturally gifted mechanic, meaning he could fix the car, he could fix the washing machine if it broke down, that that's uh, That was back in the days when we could take apart our toys and see how they worked. Yeah. So th- it was before Game Boy and things like that, and, and uh, software-based toys. These were mechanically-based toys. And if you had a mechanical mind and you like looking at the parts and how they all fit together, uh, yeah, there was there were many, many ways to satisfy your curiosity. So my brothers and I inherited a little bit of that that love of mechanics. My brothers, you know, at home, they they can do plumbing and they can do any household repairs that need to be done. They've got high man IQ. And uh, as the only daughter in the family, I inherited some of that man IQ. I, I enjoy that kind of stuff, uh, which turned out to be uh, fortuitous for my career in the music business.
1: I was going to say, we're going to get to that. that. That just sounds, as you're talking about breaking down the mechanics and you eventually producing music and 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 doing that, and as you as you point out in the book, like without being a musician, I think that curiosity is a theme we're gonna talk about for the rest of the day. So Lullaby Lane, mm-hmm. <laughs> how awesome is that? I mean, that that had to be a lot of fun to have Disneyland in the backyard.
0: Oh, it's amazing. And and right between Disneyland and our attractive homes was a heliport. And uh, that was a heliport and the Disneyland hotel was on the other side of the street. And this heliport, was wonderful because it was a tiny little orange grove you know an abandoned orange grove that was on the side of the heliport and kids could sneak into that orange grove and you could watch the helicopters land and take off you'd lie on your belly in the old the desiccated orange leaves were lying on the ground you kind of you kind of crawl through through the leaves you'd sneak in and you watch these helicopters take off and land it's it's a wonderful thing to be in a place where children have a lot of um, unusual sites yeah explore uh it's 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 mind expanding i think uh, for
1: for children i i without a doubt so what it was like what was elementary school and middle school like then
0: mm, i think it was kind of the, the the usual stuff uh, people of a certain age will remember uh the duck and cover drills Mm-hmm. That we had to do because the Cold War was going on, and there was always fear that you know, a nuclear bomb could be dropped, and, and and there was that, and there was the Kennedy assassination, and then later there was the, the there were race riots and the Vietnam War and civil rights movement, and and all those things, uh, not unlike what we have now. But what was different then is the world was um, smaller, so to speak. We couldn't we couldn't tune it out as easily as perhaps you can now you were well aware of what was going on in the world and in your nation and in your neighborhood to a greater extent i think so it was a pretty normal education Um, my um, there was difficulty in my family because my mother was stricken with cancer when i was eight years old i'm the oldest and the only girl so she was stricken with cancer and she passed away uh when i was 14 so my life involved an awful lot of cooking and cleaning and ironing and and bed making and meal preparing and all that at a, at a really young age
1: while, while all that was going on did you have a teacher or, or someone who was a strong influence in your life to help guide you and provide you perseverance and and the energy you needed to be able to go through all of that
0: I had two, and uh, one was uh, a dog, a family pet, mm-hmm. and the other was, was music. So, you know, a family pet, you, they just listen. Right. So if you're having a bad day, you can go and put your arm around the dog, and you can talk or just wordlessly feel, and you've got that companion there. Um, that relationship with animals can be more... Um, nurturing, more wise than perhaps we might suspect. And then, of course, the relationship with music. When we're young people, whether our lives are going very, very well or going poorly, we're going to have problems that we don't know how to solve we haven't lived long enough life is the best teacher and when you're a kid you haven't had enough of it so sometimes you can turn to records and uh, that singer will provide you with lyrics provide you with an attitude and help you find your way out of this problem by by suggesting here's what you need to say to this person or Here's uh, here's how you should think about this problem. Music was a great source of comfort and inspiration to me always has been.
1: So 14 year old Susan going into high school. One of the things you talk about in your book is this idea of a record pull. What what would have been those three or four albums songs? Re- is and I love how in the book you say we're just going to call it a record, whether that be a song, a disc, a cassette or or vinyl. It's just a record. What, what would have been a couple of records that would have, you know, you would have gone to, you know, in that moment?
0: Yeah. In my teens, my early teens, I loved soul music as uh, my former employer Prince would, would say that was the street I lived on. So soul music was, was my go-to. So I definitely would have uh, chosen if you had me pick three, Sly, something from Sly and the Family Stone for sure. Um, Possibly something from James Brown. But then I also liked, um, when they came along, I liked Led Zeppelin uh, very, mm-hmm. very much. They came along in the early 70s. I l- still love Jimmy Page and the great John Bonham. And so, yeah, but I, I, I may have I may have tabled James Brown and put on something from the Stacks label out of Memphis. Booker T and the MGs, uh, Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn, and, and Al Jackson Jr. on drums. Yeah, that was a street I lived on.
1: So one of the, I tell, I don't think I've ever told the story on the podcast, but I got my driver's license on the day I got my driver's license uh, in the little town I live in, in Wisconsin. uh, We had, we had one place where we could buy music. It was Radio Shack. And suddenly, like when I was a freshman in high school, they stopped selling music. So the closest record store was about 15 miles away. And the day I got my driver's license, my dad said I could take the car and I had to stay in town and I couldn't have a friend in it. And I said, okay, and I grabbed the keys, I grabbed $5 and I got in the car and I drove to that record store. Yeah. And I'm wondering if we have the same parallel piece. The record store was, and I hate to use the metaphor, but that was kind of my temple. That was a very safe place for me. That's a, a place where I could go in and just walk in and try to figure out what the employees were listening to. You know, If I liked it, I might buy it, I'd go through and I'd go through the stacks and just keep looking for more and more music. And, and I'm wondering, did you have a similar type of experience and did you do the same thing like record swaps with friends and, and when you were younger?
0: Yeah, as much as I could, as I mentioned earlier, my youth was divided between being in school, doing homework, that kind of stuff. And basically helping to run a household because my, my mother was incapacitated for so long, the, the The poor woman was really ill for a long time. She hung on for a long time. So I didn't have as much discretionary time as a typical teenager Mm -hmm. would have. When I could, of course, I loved going to a friend's house to play music. When I had a little bit of money, and our family didn't have much, but when I had a little bit of money, uh, buying a record was such a luxury. Um, You've probably seen the movie Licorice Pizza yes or heard of it yeah that that was the chain of record stores that you'd see in southern california in those days and the mall that was closest to us it was a good 5 6 miles away but when we would go on errands to run into licorice pizza and do what you just described first you got the big posters on the wall so that's suggesting right away, okay, here's some cool records that are out. But then you go to your sections and, oh, it could be rock or it could be R&B or it can be a jazz or they got all the different sections there and you start combing through those records. It's almost painful because there are more there than you can consume or that you can afford. And to pick one out of this panoply.
1: Yeah, it's, it's overwhelming. Records,
0: yeah, but then you you choose your record and it'd be in the shrink wrap, and you buy it and you can't wait to get it home. Remember, you just can't wait to get it home. And you take off that shrink wrap and you pull that vinyl out of that sleeve and you take that first whiff, you know, that smell of that mm-hmm. vinyl. Remember, that there was a record store called uh, Delicious Vinyl. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a record label, I believe. Yeah. So you take that licorice pizza out, and then you'd sit and you'd put on that record. And you'd sit in front of the speakers and you'd study it. You'd stare at the cover, you'd stare at the back, it may or may not have lyrics, but it would have credits, and that you'd call your friend and you'd say, I just got this album, and your friend would say, well, I just got that album. So you'd go to one another's homes, and you'd listen to music. It's hard to explain uh, to students today. I don't know if they can understand what that's like. Music listening as a set activity. The thing we are doing together is listening to music.
1: And I think, I think a lot of that has to do with how you're raised. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, one of the things for me was I, you know, as I read your book and I had sent you that question about biology, you had, you had put in your book this, and I, it's in the introduction and it framed your entire book for me. And it said, you know, the listener profile, biology, experience, happenstance, musical culture, what you grew up with. Um, and then I added like specific records and critical moments in your life. And that's where I – and I'll send you this. I created this tool to use for when I'm working with people on, like, almost like a team building. Like, because I thought your, this idea of this record pull, you know, like, bring three albums, bring three records so we can talk about it, so I can kind of understand you and you can understand me. And as you were saying that, like, one of my favorite smells now is the must, like, mm. of, an old, of an old album. And as you were speaking – you know, one of my favorite things is when you get into old albums from the '50s. So I pulled this one of my favorite Etta James albums, and one of my favorite parts is when there's the narrative on the back. Yeah. So you're listening to the music, and then a lot of the times the lyrics were printed on the on the on the vinyl cover, and just those different pieces. And I I do think that my children uh, have been raised to listen start to finish to the album, recognize the artist's order, and the importance of that. Um, and then learn the story, because uh, talk to me about the emotions that you felt. So going into, you know, your late teens, early adulthood, tell us the if you don't mind, tell us the Led Zeppelin concert story. Because ah. <laughs> I so, saw that I had put the book down. I was like, oh, just to have been in that
0: place. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Great things and sad things and puzzling things all at the same place and time. So I mentioned that uh, home life was was difficult. I had really good parents, not bad people at all, wonderful, wonderful people. But it's very uh, difficult for children to lose their mother. And after that, uh, my brothers and I were kind of, we had to grow up really fast so one way for me to grow up was to get married. And so it's what ended up happening. Home life was so sad that I got married when I was 17, dropped out of high school, never finished it, and um, married this guy. And he was about four or five years older than I was. Um, it ended up being a A terrible mistake because he was a very bad man. Now, uh, for every positive, there's a negative. Because he was a bad man, it ended up being a good thing because I could get away from him guilt-free. I wouldn't have the life I have if I had stayed married. But anyway, he was physically abusive. Uh, He was also very jealous of my love of music. He didn't like music at all. So uh, my friends and I had tickets to see Led Zeppelin at the forum in los angeles holds 14,000 people and the tour was the song remains the same tour oh. so it's led zeppelin at their peak right and i was a huge led zeppelin fan and i had this ticket my friends and i from work were going and the person i was married to gave me permission to go but he said very strictly but you must be home by 10:30 and I, don't, I didn't know, so I looked at the ticket and it said 8 o'clock. So I thought, okay, well, that seems reasonable. Yeah, okay, I'll be home by 10.30, no problem. And, of course, the band didn't even take the stage until 9 o'clock. And it was one of the greatest things I'd ever seen in my life. So I'm there sitting up there in the seats at the Forum where the Lakers play in Los Angeles, and I'm watching John Bonham on drums, Jimmy Page, my favorite guitarist, guitar. Robert Plant on vocals. It was it was it was ecstasy. But I kept looking at my watch, and I realized I've got a choice here. If I don't leave, if I stay here for this concert, when I go home, I will be punched in the face, and I will go to work with a black eye the next day. It's going to be bad. But if I leave, get home by ten thirty, there's a chance that he'll be. Uh, open to the idea of me going to other concerts. It was terrible. But I, I, I was, you know, I was a kid I, at this point. I, I'd been married for three, four years. I was 21 years old. What did I know? I'd never seen violence in the home. So I, I didn't know how to deal with it. So I left. I made the decision that I'd leave. And as I'm walking up the stairs to leave this this big arena, I made this little Scarlett O'Hara vow. And I looked up at the rafters and I thought, okay, I'm going to leave. But as God is my witness, I'm going to come back here in this room, this place, and I'm going to mix live sound for an amazing band, which was just like saying, I'm going to become an astronaut and I'll be walking on Mars someday. Like, how's this going to happen? I don't know any musicians. I don't know anything about anything. I know no one in the music business. Me, mixing sound, a woman who knows nothing or nobody, yeah, not going to happen. But I made my little vow and it made me feel better. And then shortly after, I did leave this person I was married to. I left and I moved with a girlfriend to Hollywood and got my career started, overheard that sentence from uh, this guy who said, become a maintenance tech and you'll always work. I said, "Okay." I became a maintenance tech. I studied electronics and electroacoustics and rather electromagnetism and acoustics and Recording principles on my own. I couldn't afford college, but I could afford the textbooks. So I got the books, studied, studied, got a job as an audio tech. And uh, not too long afterwards, 1984, I was working with my favorite artist at that time, Prince. I was Prince's audio technician. And we were on the Purple Rain Tour.
1: Which is amazing. Yep. I mean, you... And, and that's why I, I, I apologize, but I fell in love with you when I read that story. And, and the reason is, is you demonstrate everything we need to just be the best versions of ourselves: perseverance and tenacity and curiosity. And that's, that's that Buffalo leadership you and I talked about mm-hmm. before I started recording. The, the idea that you just picked up and you charged into your storm and, and you followed a path of your own making.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: like. Susan, just as a teacher, like to know that you did those things, it makes me really proud of you you. because, you know, then you go, you've got this whole career that I want to talk about, but like, just the fact that, like you said, in the seventies, as a woman, I'm going to do this then in the eighties and then overhearing it and then taking the risk to, to move to Minnesota. But before I get to that, I want, I want to ask you a question because I actually made a poster of a quote uh, from your book. And I want to read that quote to you. because when you talked about the experience of Led Zeppelin and then hearing and listening, you write in here, listening is not the same as hearing. Listening is an active process, not a passive one. And becoming a competent musical listener requires curiosity, effort, and love. And I believe that's a core leadership principle of just a good person. Talk, mm. talk to me about like where that comes from and how, because it's just such a strong statement. Because to me, that's that's applicable in music, that's applicable in a relationship, that's applicable, you know, as an educator and as a leader.
0: Hmm. You know, it's interesting that desire comes with tension. And um, when you think about your career, your life, sometimes think about those early years, in terms of a slingshot, and the further you pull back that elastic, the more tension you're going to put on it. But once it's released, once it gets that opportunity, the more tension there is in the slingshot, the further that the pebble is going to go. And for my own life, the tension of that, that uh, terrible early marriage, feeling trapped, uh, pulled back that slingshot so that when I finally did escape, I could go for an awful long way um, without looking back, without Mm -hmm. slowing down. It fuels your journey. So, yeah, it feels like um, in in order to be successful, we need in equal parts. We need desire, but we also need fuel. We need the weight of something behind that desire. I see students at Berkeley all the time who desire very badly a career in music, but they're not necessarily pushed to sacrifice in order to have that career. The sacrifices are great. Um yeah, I don't know if I if I quite answered your question, but I I in thinking about those early years and in thinking about how we achieve something, it's clear that it's 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 desire and it's courage, but there needs to be some degree of tension to to fuel the tank and to keep you going when things get tough.
1: Well, and in the the business, uh, in your early part of your business, I'm assuming that when you're working with artists and bands, that tension, talk to me about that process that you've observed and and how like just beautiful art comes out of that kind of chaos.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, recording studios are incredibly creative places, of course but remember that music is an expression of life and life isn't easy. Sometimes it is, but it's sometimes very hard and it's sometimes simple and it's sometimes very, very complex and it's sometimes beautiful, sometimes ugly. It smells sweet and it stinks. So all those things have to be present in the team, who are making a record. All, all, all the good, the bad, and the ugly, because all of these things, these life experiences, these impressions, these thoughts, these doubts and fears, as well as all the good stuff you've got going on, your creativity and perhaps your skill or your knowledge, all of that goes into making a record. In uh, the recording studio, we we never anticipate that we're just gonna walk in and we're just gonna play music and it's gonna be great. It's gonna be easy. No, 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 no. We're on, we're on output in the studio and the record producer is listening on input or musical gestures and sounds and parts that can express the inner lives of other people, of music listeners. When we listen, as you said a moment ago, we're not just hearing. Listening involves activating some neural circuitry that's concerned with your self image, your sense of self. So we so to speak, go into our own heads when we listen deeply and we take that neural pattern of activities and we link it to our sense of self, that's listening. That's embedding your own self into the music and interpreting what it means to you, which is all that matters. It's all that matters, what you think it is.
1: And that's, that's, I love that because, you know, now you're taking kind of the neuroscience and your background and your learnings there um, and just uh, how that works. Because, again, in your book, you, you have another text um, discussion about how our abstract art frees our brain from the dominance of reality, enab- enabling the brain to flow within its inner states, create new emotions in those different pieces. And that's what you're talking about. That's, that's the power of, of all these pieces. So... Mm. So Susan with you you know in your different roles and, and I want to talk to you, uh, talk about that because I ever when I read books I read them like metaphorically like oh she's like a assistant coach and she's trying to get them to get the best out of here and this is what's happening because you know most people look at a record or they watch a television show and they blow past all of the names at the end right so it'll say like producer gaffer mm-hmm you know, makeup. Nobody reads that, but there's somebody's mom, dad, aunt, uncle, son, or daughter who's like, pause it. That's, that's my sister. Right. Tell, Tell me what the, the, your, your development then on the back end was like working your way all the way to Minnesota.
0: Um, so continuing the journey, uh, from the Led Zeppelin concert, I, um, moved to Hollywood, which wasn't far away with a girlfriend. And, um, Saw an ad in the back of the LA Times that said audio trainee wanted. It was perfect for me. I was a trainee, raw beginner, and I went to work for a company called Audio Industries that sold recording studio equipment. And I was a technician repairing that equipment out there in the field. After I'd been with them about two and a half, three years, I was hired away by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They had a studio in Hollywood, and I became their studio maintenance tech and then uh, did that for a few years. And then I got this out of the blue phone call that told me that Prince was looking for an audio technician because Prince was just, uh, he had just come off the 1999 tour and he was already in process beginning the Purple Rain movie and what would be the Purple Rain album. And he needed a tech. he, he told his management, get me someone from New York or LA. He wanted someone who had been in the business and, and who really knew his or her stuff. Well, it was my lucky day and it was his lucky day too, because I I wanted that gig He liked working with women. I had the energy. I could hang with him with those long 24 hour sessions. I was a Prince fan. I'd seen him live when he came through Los Angeles on several tours. I had all of his records and I listened to the same music that he did. So I knew his musical references. So I packed my bags and uh, moved to Minnesota and got started immediately. After I joined him as a tech, it wasn't long where he showed No interest in the distinction between an audio tech who repairs the gear and an audio engineer who actually uses it and, and records with the artist. So he put me in the engineering chair and, uh, that was, that was my gig.
1: That had to be life changing. So, so just backing up, what is an audio tech, like what's that job? What, mm. what, what's the day-to-day? So you're in Crosby, Stills, and Nash's studio. Was that in Echo Canyon, or where was that?
0: No, it was in uh, it was a little place called Rudy Records, and it was oh. owned by Graham Nash and David Crosby. It was right on Sunset Boulevard, right in the heart of Hollywood. And uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were working on the Daylight Again album mm. during a lot of the time when I was there. Uh, and and there were other friends of theirs would book the studio. The Eagles were there, and... Art Garfunkel was there, Bonnie Raitt, in the early days of Bonnie Raitt, she she would be there a lot. And just just folks from that whole LA soft rock what? scene. And this I was mean- in the early 80s. And 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 this was this was a, an unusual time because just down the street was AM Records with the big billboards and tower records. You see the big billboards. For new wave artists, it was the Cars and Talking Heads and Blondie, so I I, I I was right there being a youth of the new wave movement, but working for the old wave movement and uh, having you know have equal respect for both. But it was a good time, the early '80s in music.
1: That's a weird confluence, right? So you go from like, like you said, soft rock, uh, and one end, and there's that's a huge part of the of the of the charts at that time and then now you just started to talk about so you just talk. that's the difference between when i had control of the radio in the car and my mom had control of the radio right and although growing up with both of that it's a cool confluence but i just have a, a like a starstruck moment here for you for me how did you just work in that environment with these you know like people coming are you invisible to them are you like instrumental to them are you do they treat you, no- like, what's that like?
0: Oh, thanks. Because
1: everybody I- acts different around, you know, you get around a, you know, if Taylor Swift were to open the door, I'd fall over. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't even know how to act.
0: That's a good question. And I, I want to answer your other question about the difference between an audio tech and a recording engineer. But um, the first thing you have to realize is these people hired you and they're going to give you money because they want something from you. It's a service oriented profession. They need you to do something for them. So the absolute last thing they need is for you to be starstruck. That mm. won't work, it won't work. You, you, When they look at you, they must see their technician. And what a technician does, what I did in those days was repair equipment and keep it properly maintained. There's the big recording console with 96 inputs in some cases, there's the 24 track tape machine, there's the big, big loudspeakers, the big monitors on the wall, and there's microphones and there's, there's all sorts of gear that occasionally needs to be pulled and, and repaired. And you get your schematics out and you get your oscilloscope and your soldering iron and you trace that signal, you find the broken component and you go across the street to Yale Electronics and you buy the new part. And it's 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 being like like an auto mechanic, you're you're repairing the equipment. I was—I must have been an unusual sight, you know, being 23, 24, 25 years old, a young woman repairing equipment, but I was well-trained and I knew my stuff and I worked really hard. I studied really hard to, to know what I was doing and I, I could do the job. So when I would see any of these artists come in, i what I wanted was for them to look at me and see a technician and trust me to work on their very expensive gear, so I, I took that work ethic very seriously. Same thing when I went to work for Prince. Um, this was my favorite artist, and uh, and there I am. You know, just the two of us. In a, a, a he lived in Chanhassen, Minnesota, in a split-level home. And the the ground floor of this split-level home had his master bedroom, and across the hall there was a, a smaller bedroom. That served as his recording studio. So that was it was a small bedroom, you know, eight by ten or something like that, which had recording equipment in it. But for hours at a time, I'm alone with Prince in this room, and I cannot be looking at him like a fan would. Of course, there's admiration there, but he needs me to perform a service for him. So I I I throughout my career, I took that very seriously. I I took that very seriously. I I could have lightened up a little bit. I could have had a few more um, personal moments with the artists that I worked with. I I wouldn't allow myself to do that because I was so grateful to be working and I wanted so badly to be in it and be working.
1: Well, and I I think what you shared there, which I I don't want to gloss over, is being a woman in the 70s early 80s and then into the 90s in an industry dominated by an old boys club you know like you always see these pictures of frank sinatra nine techs smoking cigarettes and big black glasses on and it looks very uh much the same yeah so you alone must have been disruptive in a positive way and with different ideas and and forces as you were in the profession
0: It's a funny thing, you know, you've got your impression of yourself and you'll never know what other people think of you. But my impression of myself was, oh, hell yes, I belong here. Uh I've been asked in the past, did I suffer from imposter syndrome? And as I understand it, imposter syndrome means that you feel like you don't belong. I never felt like I didn't belong. My passion for music, my interest in it was undeniably strong. The sacrifices I made, the work I did to be good at my job was huge. So feeling like I didn't belong? Never, never, never. What I always felt and still feel to this day is I wish I had more information. I wish I knew more. I wish I was further along. I I, I wish I was better at this gig you always want that. you always want the feeling of I'm I'm good, but I could be better so that you'll continue to move forward. but I didn't feel like an imposter and I I do think um, that that deep confidence kind of showed uh, I was okay with presenting the face that says, well, I might not be the best that there is out there, but I'm good and getting better so uh, showing that you're in it, you know and that and that um you deserve to be, uh, you deserve to be considered as being in it. And that always seemed to work.
1: But I I, I agree. I love that. And I think that, you know, the, the amount of incidental role modeling you were likely doing for others that, you know, kind of showed like, well, if she could do that, why can't I can probably do this too? And, and that influence now as a professor of, you know, well, you don't, you don't just have to do this, you could also do this and also do this. And then the happenstance and falling into these different pieces and these different influences you have over your life. I mean, that's leadership at its essence. It's influence over other people. And I think that's a really powerful piece of your journey.
0: It's a component. Um, I would have said, if we'd had this conversation a month ago, I would have said, yeah, and things are getting better, but I'm serving on the board of an organization called We Are Moving the Needle by the great mastering engineer, Emily Lazar, and another former student, Jasmine Koch. And uh, anyway, uh, they just spent the past year doing a meta-analysis of women in technical roles in the music business. They just released their report last week. It's 101 pages long. It's called Fix the Mix. (laughs) There are incredible graphics in it, and it is showing Of the records that are appearing on the billboard charts and that are the most consumed, the top 10, top 100 records, the number of women ranges from 0% to like 3%. The numbers are staggering. So many women are going to recording programs like the one at Berkeley and Musicians Institute and all kinds of programs. They're going to these programs to get into the technical roles of engineer or, or producer or mixer but they're simply not being hired in the numbers that would allow them to advance in this industry. Uh, people are reluctant to hire women in these roles. And at some point, women just say, well, I can't take this anymore. And, and they leave and they 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 take on another take on another gig. I will say that um, those of us, we call ourselves the OGs, the original goddesses. <laughs> Myself, <laughs> Leslie Ann Jones and Peggy McCreary and Trina Shoemaker, Sylvia Massey, uh, all but one of us is childless. We we made this sacrifice to to choose the career and not not raise children. It's easier to raise children today uh, when music is much more portable. Music making is more portable. But yeah, it was there were a lot of sacrifices to be made then, and it made it very difficult to create inroads in the industry that would allow music makers to say to themselves, yeah, this woman, she'd be a great engineer, she'd be a great producer. I'll be eternally grateful to the men like Prince and Bare Naked Ladies and David Byrne and Tricky and Robin Ford, Devin Campbell, I'll be sure. All the great men who looked at me and said, I want you. I want you to produce. I want you to engineer. I want you to mix my record. I wouldn't have a career without them, and 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 they were forward thinking uh, in order to do that.
1: I and I, this frustrates me to no end. I I work in in education, where as a male I'm a minority, hmm. but we still have to work every day, all of us, to put more women in positions of leadership. And uh, without getting into it, I started something a few years back called Women Leading Wisconsin, and and. I asked them to be the last of the firsts, and to ensure that my daughter Grace, if she could do anything, she could be the best at it, but not the first at it. Yeah. You know, it it still blows me away that in twenty twenty three, like when you gave those percentages, that just flat out hurts my heart. That zero to three percent of, because it it just shouldn't be that way, and there there's got to be a way to break the cycle. And and I think I think you are are one of those people who. You know, in that report, I'm going to get that report. I've got a long conference to go to tomorrow. So I'm going to pull that up and, and read you that. But
0: You will love it. The graphics are great.
1: Yeah. And I will send it out. Let's go back to this Prince wants a female, you know, tech, and then tell us that journey of like where that puts you, because you, you've, it's just an awesome, it's an awesome story. And, and that's, this is a leadership podcast and you're a leader.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I went to I went to work for him. I was hired and moved out to Minnesota, where I knew not a single individual. Uh, And I'll tell you about my very first meeting with him. Uh, Instinct kicked in and it served me well there. So I spent a week when I was first hired by him in his house installing a new recording console making some repairs to the uh, tape machine and there was a little list of things for me to fix and look at and and wire up and i did all that and i could hear him upstairs the kitchen dining area was right above the studio. And he was up there taking meetings with Vanity Six and with The Time and with his own band. And they were planning the Purple Rain movie. They were in rehearsal for it. So I knew he was in the house, but he didn't come downstairs while I was there working. So I didn't get to meet him until finally I was finished with my work. And and by the way, this was not unusual for Prince because he definitely kept to himself and he had this this thick veneer in his psyche that protected him from other people and their demands. So he was pretty, he was a very closed book personally. Anyway, uh, I finally, I finally let uh, his operations manager know I'm finished. I've done the last of the repairs. And so she said, she said, all right, I'll call him. And she called him and he, he came downstairs and uh, he came downstairs to meet me and he stopped on the stairwell. It was a few steps above me. He didn't even introduce himself or say hello. He just stopped on the stairs and he said, have you done this? And have you done that? And he started asking questions and I answered his questions. And then he said, okay, come back tomorrow at 10 or something like that. And he turned around to leave. And my instincts kicked in and I thought, no, 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 this is a bad way for this to start. I just moved 2,300 miles, left everyone I've ever known to work for this guy. And it's not starting like this. So I stopped him. He turned to go up the stairs and I said, excuse me, Prince. He stopped and turned around and looked at me and I just stuck out my hand. And I said, I'm Susan Rogers. Shake hands with him. He gave kind of a little bow. And uh, he got this look on his face that I would see many times. <clears throat> he looked kind of amused, like he was trying not to laugh. Mm-hmm. And he stuck his hand out and we shook hands and he said, I'm Prince. We both kind of shook hands and we did a little bow. <laughs> I felt like I was in the Wizard of Oz. We just did a little bow, very formal. <laughs> and I said, "Oh, nice to meet you. See you tomorrow." In hindsight, uh, I'm I'm really glad I did that because the subtext of that said, "You're my boss. You can fire me at any time. I'm your employee. I can quit at any time. This is a temporary contract that we will share for." However long we share it. It could be a day and it could be years. But in addition to this temporary contract, there's a more permanent contract. We're both human beings. And I, I first off want you to see me as a human being
2: mm-hmm.
0: who is your equal on a human level. And then we'll play pretend this role of, well, what you actually are, you're the superstar and I'm your employee. Um that was a good way to a good way to start.
1: You worked with them and worked for him. and And Prince is someone who many people, many fans, have a very emotional, deep relationship with. And as you built that music, and and I can I can attest this, my brother-in-law, when Prince passed away, was devastated. And then he drove, I mean, he couldn't talk for a while. he He drove up to Minnesota and went to the different services and those different pieces. His children mourned with him. And, and working with him, like just watching his, his process and those different pieces, like what did you learn as part of that process that then helped you move along in your career, engineering and then supporting other artists?
0: Now, this is a funny thing to say, but it's the truth. It was kind of hard to learn anything from Prince because he was so unusual. Most people don't make records the way Prince does. So you'd asked earlier about uh, record making and how it goes. And uh, nearly everyone in the industry in those days, the 80s and 90s, I don't know how they do it now. But in the 80s and 90s, you'd spend a week working on a single. You'd spend a week working on the rhythm section, on the melody, the harmony, the counter melody, the vocals. And if you include mixing, it'd be a week and a day. So it takes a while to make a single and it takes months to make an album. Prince was doing a song a day at oh. that time. His, uh, he is what now in neuroscience we call a hypercreative. A hypercreative is someone who has a couple of little defects in a couple of little circuits in the brain uh, over in the right hemisphere. And these defects are kind of acting like broken, Gates. Sometimes when we're uh, being creative, we'll say the floodgates will open and creative ideas will flow. And those gates do open temporarily when we're being creative, but then they slam shut. Their normal position is to be shut. Mm-hmm. In people who are hyper creative, they have what's called reduced inhibition, meaning the gate is partially broken and those ideas just keep coming and coming and coming. So working with Prince, we would typically do a song a day, He could, if he wanted and often did, play every instrument on that record (laughs) or he'd get uh, three quarters of the way down and he'd call in Eric Leeds to put on saxophone or he'd call in Wendy and Lisa to add backing vocals or parts. And uh, of course, quite often we recorded with the whole band at rehearsal, but a song a day. So to learn anything from Prince is something you'd have to be really cautious about. When I left Prince, and uh, I I left Minnesota in early 88 and moved back to Hollywood to continue working with other artists, I would apply methods that I had learned from Prince to other artists. And I realized this isn't working. This This doesn't work. Because of Prince's unique gifts for arrangement and his unique gifts for how he conceptualized music and how the parts all fit together. Most people create Something that can be thought of as a triangle. And that triangle is going to have most of the weight in one of three elements. It's a rhythmic record. Most of the musical weight is in the rhythm. Think of a, a bar band song. a The lyrics are not poetry. It's a, it's a rhythm thing to, to get your body moving. Or uh, a record can have most of its weight on the melody. And it's going to just cause you to feel something very deeply. And that's where we're we're, we're minimizing the influence of the rhythm because we want our spotlight of attention to be on that gorgeous melody, or sometimes it's on the lyrics. And that's Bob Dylan didn't need a funky drummer. He didn't really need a drummer because where the weight is in this pyramid is, is in his lyrics. But Princeton didn't make records like that. His were more like a sphere. And he used to say that in theory, you should be able to put your spotlight of attention on any element in that record. And it should be a capable of carrying the weight, being the loudest thing in the mix. Yeah, other people don't work like that. That was very unusual. So uh, as one of Prince's engineers later in his life said, you had to unlearn Prince. Mm. That's very true. You had to leave Prince and then learn how, Yeah, most people take much longer than this to make a record. Most people organize their arrangements differently. Most people think of music differently and their methodology is different. It was great that I started my career with Prince, but I definitely started learning from a maestro and then had to come back down to earth to learn how uh, the other mere mortals worked.
1: And tell us again what, which, what album did you work on engineer with him or for him?
0: Uh, Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, the Parade album, Sign of the Times, considered his second masterpiece after Purple Rain, and then all the stuff we worked on in between, records by Sheila E. and uh, Apollonia Six, who succeeded Vanity Six. There was the Time. There was uh, just odds and ends, you know, records he did for other people, and the movies we made we made purple rain and then we made uh, under the cherry moon and we did music videos and we toured all around the world and that train moved really fast
1: and when you look back upon that now through your lens because i want to get to your your current career of the neuroscience and everything else like you brought up the hyper creativity and and now when you look back at that awesome journey that you that you got to participate in through the lens of neuroscience like what are some of your takeaways of Just the process, like you said, you had to unlearn Prince. But, you know, as you see it now, that genius, Prince, what are some of your takeaways that you share with your students?
0: Well, there were a lot of factors that contributed to Prince's success. Um, He sacrificed tremendously as a young teen, as an adolescent, in order to be great at all of the instruments he he could play. Someone once said, someone in the music business said to uh, a, a room full of attendees at a, at a conference, he said, do you like going out in the evenings? Do you like having a social life? Do you like taking weekends off? If the answer to that is yes, you're not going to become a recording engineer. You can become <laughs> something else, but you're not going to become a recording engineer. And likewise, uh, young people need to realize that, um, that superstardom Comes at a, a, a tremendous cost nothing else in your life will matter not your family not your friends not even your dating life so prince sacrificed tremendously in order to be at a point where he could get signed to a record deal at 18 19 years old and where he could be producing his own records and be a multimillionaire at age 25 wow. when i joined him i had just turned 27 he just turned 25 and he had employees so he had um this incredible work ethic. And it was kind of sweet sometimes to see when um, he'd be on the horns of a dilemma business-wise. And uh, he didn't talk much to me about his personal life. He didn't talk much in the studio, but sometimes he would use a phrase that that I understood. And he'd say, we put bread on people's tables. Meaning he was well aware as a kid, he was running a business and he needed to make decisions that would help that business thrive. So he had um, this high native intelligence, this strong work ethic, and he expected people to keep up with him. He admired and was grateful to the people who could keep up with him and work at that pace.
1: That's incredible. So I wanna share just a quick story with you and transition here, because I do wanna get to your teaching here before we go. Um, I was a bartender in college. And in your book, you talk about, you know, just the different ways that music affects you. Um, and, and I just, my favorite thing about your book, which I hope everybody reads is the idea of just learning how to listen to music and then what, what the music you listen to means to you and then how it kind of defines you. So I'm bartending at this, uh, like little corner restaurant bar and, uh, three, Girls my age come in; they're like twenty-one years old, and they're like, "We were just at Summerfest in Milwaukee. And we heard this band. You have to play the CD." And they hand me this orange CD with like an old guy in a wagon on it or something. I can't remember the cover exactly. And it's a The Bare Naked Ladies' first album. And you talked about um, this idea of love at first listen, and like the very first, oh, I couldn't be more than more than ten seconds of that song. I was like, oh. Must hear more. And then I'm reading your book and I'm thinking, first, I'm thinking, like, wow, Susan got to work with Prince. She, you know, all this cool stuff in California. And then I'm like, oh, my favorite, my favorite band when I was like a sophomore in college, the Bare Naked Ladies. What were they like? Okay. Now, this is where I'm a little starstruck because they were so funny in concert. They're so like, impulsive you know when you talk about hyper creativity some of the weird things they would just come up with on the spot so you evolve you you move on past prince and then you start working in california again and then you get with this kind of i don't know lower 40 top 40s canadian band what what were the because this is just for me what what were they like to work with
0: oh i love those guys so much as a matter of fact uh this friday i'm giving a talk a Zoom talk with Ed Robertson uh, for the Society for Creative Neuroscience. They invited me. These this cadre of neuroscientists who are exploring creativity, and they invited me. And they said, "Can you invite a musician?" And I reached out to Ed. And so Ed and I are going to chat with these scientists about creativity. But uh, I, I, I loved them then, and I love them now. Funny, smart respectful and kind and so good to work with uh, they they sent me uh, their first album for my consideration this is how it worked back in those days for my consideration to be interviewed for a position of producer on an upcoming record and I was unavailable at that at that time. And then uh, we had some mutual friends in common: a Gagita band I worked with, and Toad the Wet Sprocket, and The Odds out of Vancouver. And so uh, the ladies—I know I, I love The Odds too. <laughs> I'm watching for those who aren't watching this. I'm yeah. Just oh, you just—you just,
1: you just kept—you're yeah. naming off more of my favorite bands. Toad the Wet Sprocket. The, the, uh, love them. Yeah.
0: Oh. So anyway, so the, the the ladies reached out and. Um, end of 97 and they said, could you do this this record with us, our next album, which was the album Stunt. And I said, oh, I'd really love to, but I've only got three weeks. And three weeks was not enough time to do a whole record. And they, uh, we were meeting backstage at a, at a show and uh, they looked around and they said, well, we have the songs already written and we can go pretty fast. And uh, what you don't finish, we can hand off to another producer and a mixer, take it over the finish line. And I said, okay, I'm in. So we booked time. Uh, In Austin, Texas, in early 1998, and we had to work really fast. We had to do a song a day. We had to work at the Prince Prince Speed. Prince
1: Fast, yeah. You're the one.
0: And here are these guys who were such good musicians, so good on their instruments, and so receptive and open to ideas. So when you're in the studio and you've got a lot of creative minds, you know sometimes people wanna hog the ball, so to speak, and and steer the ship. But like a lot of successful people, they knew the value in sharing the leadership role for creativity anyway, and passing that beach ball around the room. So they were open to every idea. They would try things. They were open to ideas, but they were very decisive. And they're smart. They know themselves. They know their brand. So at that time, our mandate was to make a record that would sell in the U.S. because prior records had been very successful in Canada, not so much in the U.S. So in order to do that, we needed to be sensitive to the rhythmic gestures that are more prevalent in U.S.-based music compared to Canadian-based music. The Canadian music is more heavily influenced by um, Great Britain. And music from from across the pond, so we had to change our rhythm section a little bit, and we did. We did. Uh, Tyler, the great drummer in that band, was open to those ideas, and and uh, and we had we had a tremendous amount of fun and productivity in those three weeks. I had to move on to another record. They passed it off to David Leonard, who finished it up with the guys, and then shortly after July 1998, um, we had the number one single on the billboard charts uh, with one week
1: and and I mean I you know you don't know this but like you you created something with them that was like fundamental in the beginning stages of my life with my wife my Mm -hmm. marriage that song that the one week that whole album um and I just I can't underestimate to you your influence on others being you know a, a a woman now a neuroscientist and just the just the driver you are you're you're so influential and i mean we barely got your book we've already been on for an hour and and what I, what i want i want you to share now is so after the re- the recording business tell us about your 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 second blossoming mm-hmm. tell us about your second journey
0: mm-hmm. so i got into the music business because i really felt a calling when i was a kid it felt like I was magnetically being pulled toward a life as a record maker. I had zero interest in being a performer or an artist. I took piano lessons and it it was no spark of excitement at all. What I loved was listening to records, listening to the radio. So it seemed only right that I should put my body where my mind already was and I should become a record maker and be a professional listener. And then in my... uh, Early 40s, around around the time of Naked Ladies, I, I began feeling a second calling. And that calling was telling me, oh, I'd like the life of a scientist. Oh, I think this would be good. And the voice just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. That magnetic pull toward exploring the natural world and addressing questions of what the hell is that? Or why is it doing this? Oh, it just sounded so good. No, I had dropped out of high school, so I didn't know if I could be a student again, but um, I thought, all right, I'm going to go for it. And um, when the stunt album was a huge quintuple platinum record in those days that we miss very much, that's when you'd get a big royalty check, six figures. And six months later, you'd get another one if you Mm. were a person on a very successful record. So with that money, I was now able to uh, leave the music business. And I entered college, University of Minnesota, Go Gophers, and did a double major in neuroscience and psychology. Went straight up north to McGill in Montreal and got my PhD specializing in um, the neuroscience of music perception and cognition. Uh, Berkeley College of Music is in Boston. And uh, so I was hired in 2008, uh, came to, to Berkeley. Taught there until just when the book came out, just in September. I'm semi-retired. I live out in upstate New York, and I still teach for Berkeley. They have a Berkeley online program. I teach psychoacoustics. I'm writing music and neuroscience right now for them. And then I've got a couple of 100-level classes for Berkeley that meet over Zoom. So uh, I'm still teaching, but I'm semi-retired now.
1: And talk to me about the art of listening to music.
0: Mm. Yes. So this is recently discovered and it's a hot topic in neuroscience. There's a network of interconnected nuclei in our brains. And this network, when it gets active, represents what they call your default mode. You know how our brains switch back and forth between attending to what we're hearing or seeing or feeling, the outside world, and switching into our inside world, the private world of our heads. If you ask people, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing right now? 30 to 50% of the time they say yes. Mm -hmm. We go in our own heads a lot, that's just what a brain does. So it turns out that this default network that turns on by default when you're not giving your brain something to do, gets easily and readily activated when you're listening to music you love. Kind of feels like that. So when you're listening to something that takes you away, so to speak, you go into your own head and you activate this default network, which activates circuits responsible for self-image, self-awareness, self-consciousness. It becomes something that uh, a phrase I used in the music business before I ever had an education. It becomes the music of you. So if we were to listen to a record right now, All of us listening to the same record in our cochlea, in our ears, be the same record for all of us, more or less. But once it gets up here, once it gets into that default network and activates other regions of the brain, it's a different record for each and every one of us. I wrote this book describing the listener profile, how yours and mine formed, when it formed, And what it says about your inner desires and your private psyche, your private self, when you choose this record over that record as being the music of you. So I uh, sometimes when I'm talking about myself and my life, I shorten it by saying I've spent nearly all my adult life as a professional listener meaning mm. my job was to be on input that's what a producer does is your task with listening to what they're doing listen to their performances and the tones and the parts and the arrangement listen and report back on whether or not this is connecting with you I'm not alone in this. I mean, DJs and record executives and a lot of folks who don't make music are professional listeners. They're on input and their brains are trained to not only listen to and enjoy music, but to make some decisions about it so that it can be enjoyed with any luck by a lot of other people. Um, That was the case for me when I was making records. And I thought when I got into the sciences that that would all go away, but it turned out that it, it didn't. So my love of music persisted and it turned out that these questions of what music is can be explored scientifically in behavioral studies, in physiological studies, in neuroimaging studies. You can explore what music is and what you discover is that our individual listening brains are responsible for the variety of music that we hear today. Some people love prog rock. Others hate it. As you just said, it's, 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 it, it's different brains, and it gives us all of this different music. If we all had the same brain, we'd all like the same music. Thank, thankfully, we've got this tremendous variety. What we need from music lovers and listeners today, and I'll wrap this up, but what we need is for people to be proud of their listening brain, be proud of their musical taste, and be willing to do a record pull with their friends, with their family, share with others the music that knocks you out. Because what you're doing is you're sharing an intimate part of your psyche. You're saying, this is the music of me. This is the music that activates my default network, my sense of self. It's going to be more than one genre. You like some music for its rhythm. You like other music for its lyrics, other music for its melodies or its sounds or its design. You don't like one style of music, but nonetheless, it's an intimate and generous way of sharing yourself with your with your friends.
1: It's so good. What two more questions? What is your favorite neuroscience discovery?
0: I love this so much. And I anthropomorphize everything just because it's funny and it's fun. So this came out of Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Uh, Robin Wilkins, Donald Hodges, and that team. So they had people come into the laboratory to lie in an FMRI scanner, the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, which allows us to non-invasively watch an active brain at work. And they said uh, to these folks, bring in three categories of records. Bring in a record that you really like, bring in your favorite record, and bring in a piece of music that you dislike and they watched the brain to see what areas of the brain would be activated when people were listening to these different categories of music. And sure enough, when they listened to the liked and the favorite music, the default network lit up like a Christmas tree and people went into their own heads, even lying in a scanner, they went into their own heads, shut out the outside world, default network got active. But when they listened to music that they didn't like, a wee little circuit, nucleus, Right hemisphere, there's one on the left and one on the right, but it's the right one that's more responsible for art. So um, the right precuneus, which is not part of the default network, but which is connected to it, basically said, oh, hell no, and cut (laughs) itself off from the default network, as these scientists wrote, possibly to prevent this music from being integrated into your sense of self. We've all had this reaction where something is playing, and we decide, studies have shown this, within a second whether this style of music is the style we like. In under a second, we decide, no, not my music, not this, not for me. That's your little precuneus saying, nope, and slamming those gates shut. Coincidentally, the precuneus is the nucleus that's responsible for creativity. Hmm. And when it's broken... And it has that broken gate. People who are hyper-creative have more original ideas than others because the precunious is saying, "Yeah, I'm open to that. That could be cool. That could be possible. And it allows new ideas to flow without instantly shutting it down. That's, to me, that's one of the most exciting things that I've learned recently.
1: Oh, well, it's amazing. And I'm sure there are people who are listening who think theirs is broken. You know, there are people... I know and you know who just, their brain never stops. Their body and brains never stop and their creativity and those different components. But that's a yeah. that's a fascinating find.
0: It is. It is The hyper-creativity is, is truly unusual. And uh, you'd probably be socially impaired if you had it. In my, all my years in the music business and even at, at teaching at uh, at Berkeley, young musicians, I've only known two people who I could really? label as hyper-creative. One is Prince and the other is uh, someone I've been... Um, my musical partner with for, for 30 years, Tommy Jordan of the band Gagita. And, and I know Tommy, he's my best friend. And yet, um, when we made records in the studio, Tommy was so frustrating because his ideas wouldn't stop coming they just wouldn't stop coming it was very difficult to wrap things up we'd be ready to press record on the tape machine to print a mix and Tommy'd say wait and you'd have to kind of send him off to write a new song he's got thousands of them because his creativity uh is is kind of like a broken gate
1: yeah I've read that about Elvis Costello too that he just he's never satisfied he just keeps beating hmm. up and, and doing but that's that is so fascinating all right Susan what's your record pull?
0: Okay, well. Just for today. Yeah, I'm going to go with an old favorite, and it would be um, Call Me, Come Back Home by Al Green. Um, Just because (laughs) it perfectly, perfectly exemplifies the sweet spot on my dimension of rhythm perception. It features my favorite drummer ever, the late, great Al Jackson Jr., and he's got his snare drum tuned to a low, deep-dish snare. And... uh, That groove is to my body and mind as perfect as it gets. So, you know, when you're listening to music, you'll tap your heel or tap your fingers or your toes. And most of the time when I'm tapping my heel, listening to drum machine music or most drummers, the drum seems to arrive before my heel does. With L, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. That snare arrives within milliseconds or maybe even exactly. Or I want and expect it to, and that feels good. That feels good. Other people, of course, can listen to this record and go, hey, eh, no big deal." We're all that, different.
1: That is beautiful. What is
0: yours. What is yours?
1: Uh, mine is Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. That's my 180 song. That's a that's a song that I that that comes on, and I'm immediately I'm on that hill. I'm on that journey. Uh, I and. It's just, it's it's been a fundamental song or record, you know, in my life. And that's, that's, that's just, that's my favorite. And when, just that, when it introduces, like you said, within a second, you know, just how that song comes in. And and it, what's interesting about that is, you know, I always think it's funny. I just finished up the, the uh, Bono's new book. Mm-hmm. And he talks about him and the Edge always arguing about if prog rock was good rock or not. And when you talk about influences, so like I got introduced to Led Zeppelin. So, you know, I was a a kid in the early seventies and my uncle listened to, yes, Led Zeppelin and Rush. And Rush is one of those where if you put me in that MRI machine, I'd be like, oh, stop just, (laughs) but if you crank Led Zeppelin or yes, like it, like to your point, it just, it just takes me away. It's Mm. so good. Yeah. So what I've been doing for years, Susan, and that's why your book was so attractive to us, is I, I when I work with teams, uh, we describe that that fundamental record poll. We call it a 180. So I had this really cool life experience where I was out to eat with at a restaurant with my kids. A woman serving us had a tattoo on her arm, and it turned out to be a Spotify scan code. What? Yeah. And she she like reached out to, you know, serve us. And I saw her tattoo and I'm very curious. And I was like, oh, what is that? Because it was just little lines. And uh, she said, do you have your phone on you? And I said, yeah. And she goes, do you have a Spotify account? I said, yeah. She goes, open it up and go to search and then open the camera. So I was just very nervously like opening it up. I'm like, I can't wait. I can't wait. What's going to happen? What's happened? And I scan her arm and Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus starts to play. And this woman just starts moving around, and she's like, "Isn't it great?" And then I read your book about record pulls and and all of these different people and this framework that you put in, and and you taught me how to listen because I was uh, musically trained. I played the violin and I sang in choir, and and then I'm late reading your book, frustrated that I wish I would have read this when I was 20, but mm-hmm. with wisdom in my 50s now, it's beautiful. And 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 the way the way people do that, so. You know, I, I don't know if that Al Green song is your 180 song, but if there if you had one beyond that, like what would be your 180 song that would just change the direction of your day? And I know this is overwhelming because you have a mental catalog that just exceeds probably the Library of Congress. But um,
0: that's a hard question to answer. There are uh, I think the last time, I, uh, well, uh, I'm I'm always getting turned on to new music that I really like. That I like very deeply. But there is a song that, um, in my I'm in my 60s now, that um, impresses me to the point of thinking that there's a deeper. It, it touches me more deeply, shall I say, than than many other records do. And it's probably 10 years old now. It's from Lana Del Rey, whom I love. Yes, <laughs> and she sings, uh, "This is what makes us girls," and that chorus, "This is what makes us girls. We all get to heaven, but we put our love first. It's something that we die for. It's our curse." don't talk about it. <laughs> it's all going to happen. I mean, This is, this is, this is a woman who's talking about how women, young women, we'd all get to heaven, but we put our love first, that love is often our undoing. It's our, it's often our downfall. And something about that spoke very um, importantly to me, given that, uh, you know, I made that mistake in getting married when I was young. And it could have. It could have ended much worse, and and music could have been uh, much more devastating to my life. i mean, music. I mean, marriage, love could have been much more devastating to my life if I hadn't escaped from that. And then uh, I'm I'm single, and I I live alone now. I've been single ever since. But love always um felt like the kind of thing that in order to do properly would demand that I leave music in some capacity or make music less important it's a scary notion so I don't know if it's true it's just what I feel but for her her to sing we'd all get to heaven but we put our love first it's something that we die for it's our curse such (laughs) a great line yeah oh she's good
1: Yeah. well Susan I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me Uh, the book folks is this is what it sounds like you need to read it It's very cool because as she's teaching you the science of the brain, she's telling great life stories, interweaving it with music. And then the only thing that drove me wild was you read, you reference music and then there's playlists available on on different um, music platforms. And then so you reference a song and then I need to listen to the song. Then I listen to the song and then I was like, oh, I like this. And then I'd open the album and then I would listen to the album and I'd be like, I wanted to read the book. (laughs) so this was a long read for me normally I would barrel through this pretty quickly but I I loved it I fell in love with you through the process I created tools off of this which I will send you and it was just really inspirational and 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 I was I I was so I'm not normally a nervous person but today I was like I don't I don't want to I don't know what we're going to talk about because I couldn't pull three records I pulled 11 so this was great thank you so much
0: Thank you so much, and I hope you'll email me a list of those eleven. I'd be really curious to see. I also love Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel, so I bet we have a lot in common musically.
1: Oh, when you said "Told the Wet Sprocket" before, I, I almost my heart almost stopped because it's it's on the list on the inside of the cover. Aww. The love of first listens, and I listed them off immediately. And yeah. so you 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 were great. And I just want to end by telling you, like, as someone who who built a relationship with you through your book and now on on the podcast. I just really admire you for for key things, your perseverance, you know, as a daughter with your with your your dad and your brothers, your tenacity in your marriage, and the strength it took to get out of that and standing up for yourself, and this overwhelming optimism that I don't know if you identify with, but it comes through in the book with you and your co-author on like you know you just keep looking for these different ways, and here's how to listen to music this way, and here's how to listen to this, and. It was so inspirational to me. And like I told you, I read the book through the lens of a leader. Mm. I reread the book then looking for the brain work and science so that I could support education. And I, if there's one group of people who I think need to listen to this book, one group of educators, it's not music teachers. It's not the science teachers. It's special educators. Oh. Because you talk about how music can imp- in, can support language development and listening development and, and we can build relationships through that. And the key to great teaching is first the relationships that build to the relevant learning that then can create rigor. And you mm-hmm. outline that in the book, whether you know it or not. And that's how I read it as an educator. So I love it. This is fantastic, Susan.
0: Thank you, Ted, so much. I'm very touched and I'm very grateful to you for this opportunity. And thank you for the kind words and giving me the microphone for an hour. I really appreciate it.
1: So let's do some smart thinking. Describe what it means to collaborate around music. Describe Susan's amazing journey and how we can use her as a role model to be Buffalo. And finally, think about your default network and how it is activated when you listen to music you like. And then how that area of your brain is actually responsible for your self-imaging and how that helps you create your listener profile. That's it. That's the Smart Thinking Podcast. Hey, as always, thank you for listening. And please make sure to share this with anyone you believe needs to hear it. Because I think this is a phenomenal podcast for people who love music, for people who teach music, for people who teach kids, for people who lead others, and for anyone who is just simply looking for a little bit of inspiration. Because Susan has one gear, and that gear is a no-quit overdrive. Well, Normally, at this point, I would go into a variety of different things and short little stories, but instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that you follow the well pennies on whatever musical platform you listen to and thank them for what they do for me, which is allow me to use their music on our podcast. And finally, I'm going to leave you with a couple of other Susan Rogers quotes, because she and I continue to talk after we stopped the podcast, and oddly, I left it rolling. And as a result... I think you are going to learn a few other great things, and uh, we identified you like you're a real buffalo. Like
0: that's interesting. Thank you. I like being a buffalo. I have, yeah. you know, I teach students. I'm a college professor, and um, a common theme among the seniors is their fear of what faces them after college. And I'm borrowing a, a saying from a, a close friend of mine, where he says, "The future is a big place. You can't see it all from here." you have to walk into the fog of the unknown. And I have followed my own advice to uh, be lit from the inside. If you're looking out there into the unknown future, trying to find a light and a direction, you're not gonna find it. Your direction is generated within you and that will compel you to automatically walk through the fog of the unknown toward the things you desire. students just last week, Um, we were talking about absences from class. And I was telling them when I was a student, I attended class because I was paying for it. And, and, And what a luxury to be able to sit in a seat and have people give you information. How great is that? How often we in our lives do we get the chance to just go somewhere every day where people give us something valuable? Uh, it, it matters a lot. But one of the things I said to them was, you know, you never know when you're going to hear a sentence that changes your whole life. When I was a young person, I heard a sentence that changed my entire thinking and my career path. It sent me on the path to my career. One sentence from one person wasn't even spoken to me. It was spoken to, to someone else. And I overheard it and I thought, yeah, OK, that's the right idea. That's where I'm going. So you never know.
1: What, what was the sentence?
0: So when I first decided I wanted to be in the music business, I had a roommate who was having an affair with the, uh, the guy who was the the founder of a little tiny one-room schoolhouse that very optimistically called itself the University of Sound Arts. And it could have more accurately been called the Room of Sound Arts, but whatever, it was a little (laughs) one-room schoolhouse right in Hollywood, California. And he would teach just some basic recording principles. And he had the luxury of being able to hire uh, audio technicians and engineers from Hollywood, you know, some of the best in the world. And uh, there was a teacher there who was talking with a student. And the student said to the teacher, I'm really worried about job security. Can you tell me, what what should I do to have job security in this business? And the teacher said to the student, well, if you always want a job, become a maintenance tech. You'll always work. And I I was at the desk. I was the receptionist who answered the phones. And uh, I heard that. And I said, yeah, okay. Then whatever a maintenance tech is, that's what I'm going to be because I always want to work in this business. Of course, back then, you didn't see women as engineers and producers. It it was just really unheard of. So when I heard maintenance tech always have a job, I thought, yep, whatever that is, that's what I'm doing. And I did, and it, it was the spark that lit the flame of an entire career.
1: Wow.